This is the Happy Dev Podcast with me, James Brooks. This week, I'm speaking to Matt Stalfer. If you're in the PHP or Laravel world, then Matt needs no introduction. Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going? You're very good, thanks. How are you? I'm great, thank you. For those of you who don't know Matt, let me introduce him quickly. Alongside Matt's day job as partner and technical director at the web agency Titan, Matt is an accomplished developer, teacher, podcaster, and author. In 2016, Matt's book Laravel Up and Running was published by O'Reilly Media. Over to you, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Matt Stauffer. I'm a coder and a programmer, um, teacher, author kind of guy, but I have two kids who are awesome and whom I love. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm trying to think about what other people things there are when we when you already say what I do for work. It's so funny. We always talk about like, well, here's my day job. Outside of my day job, I don't know. I like photography and I like uh, music. I don't know. <laughs> like long <laughs> walks like- on the beach, developing. I mean, honestly, you know, like developing is what I do in my free time. So that's it's hard to go beyond that. But yeah, I don't know. That's who I am. I'm Matt. When did you first become aware of your own mental health and what are your experiences with it? So I would say... That's a really good question. um, I would say that I wasn't aware that I had any mental health issues of any concern until, man, Sunshine PHP two years ago, three years ago. I'm not sure exactly which. And I started feeling, um, uh, so it was a really high stress time in my life and happened to be at a conference, which wasn't very high stress. Um, but I was at this conference, it was about six hours away from home, and I started feeling tingling up and down my left arm. And very strange stuff, had no idea what was going on, and started making me really nervous. And I spoke to a few friends, uh, one of whom was really helpful and said, oh yeah, that's a common sign of anxiety disorders, stress and anxiety. Um, here's a whole bunch of links that will help you research it. And this friend was a programmer, so they knew kind of my, my mindset that I wanted to research it. And here's some things that I've done that have helped me. And that one person really kind of took it from am i dying <laughs> to <laughs> is that a heart attack <laughs> yeah really that was and i was googling things like that and into saying nope this is a thing and i said wow i didn't i didn't know i had an anxiety and the funny thing is at that point i then kind of looked into my history and said do i and i had um i don't even know 10 5 to 10 years prior um had a point where i had uh, headaches that wouldn't go away and i went into the um university doctor and they said uh, it's those are stress tension headaches. You need to drop some classes and get more sleep and go get some massages. So, but the thing is that it happened. I had listed them and then I'd completely forgotten about it until this moment happened. So it's funny because I should have known that this was a thing, um, but I didn't. Um, and so when it happened, I went, "Oh yeah, this is this has sort of happened before." How old would you say you were about then? In 2016, in October, I turned 32, so I would have been 31 at this point. And then it was a few years prior to that that you had the tension headaches. Yeah, I would have had the tension headaches in college. So that would have been probably around 21. So quite okay. a bit prior. Yeah. And then nothing in between really. Of- no. I, I mean, not to say that I didn't have any experiences of it, but nothing cognizant, nothing at the top of my brain where I thought, oh, this is something that, you know, is a part of my life. And do you think there was a turning point when you did come to um, realize that you have your own mental health? Do you think that changed the way you... Um, perhaps perceive things or other people? Um, it definitely changed how I perceive myself. Um, in terms of how I interact with other people, I'm, I'm pretty happy to say that I have honored and respected the experiences of mental health issues um, for not my whole life, uh, as well as I hope I would. 
Um, but at least since running Titan. So we started Titan in 2011 and uh, understanding the way mental health is just as uh, important of concern as physical health has been one of the hallmarks of our company. And so that is something I can at least say that since 2011, I'm pretty proud of uh, really looking at other people and their difficulties with any kind of mental health issues as as something that's that's significant. So I don't think experiencing my own really gave me a different perspective on others. But what it did was it set my self-concept differently um, in probably a lot of ways. But I think the most noticeable one was, um, so I'm, you know, I, I have achieved a lot of success. I'm extremely grateful for all the success that I've been able to see. Um, I've got a beautiful wife, wonderful kids. Um, you know, I've got a house, I've got a job. Um, you know, things are going my way, right? And they've been going my way for a long time. And I come from, you know, a middle-class background. I'm college educated. I'm white. I'm male. Like I have so many things that are just chalked up in the things are going Matt's way category, right? And so my mental, you know, image of myself has often really been around not just like my own success, whether there is some of that, but I think that thankfully I went through a lot of experiences in college that made me recognize that I have had a lot of things given to me. and I've had a lot of things go my way. Um, and so to me, it's more been like, oh, everything's great for me. I, I never have had anything wrong happen to me really bad or anything like that. And, um, so this was one where it really, I don't want to say it shook this image because I didn't think I like thought that it was like a deep foundational self-concept, but it definitely made me, me go, wait a minute, maybe there are th some things going on here that are outside of those easy to label categories of my, my day-to-day -day life experience where, you know, maybe there's some stuff I'm still figuring out here and some stuff where it's not all perfect and easy for me. And, and it was, I think there's a lot of things that came from that, but I think one of the most significant ones for me was just to say, maybe, um, maybe I am having a hard time in some ways where I'm not even totally aware of it. Right. And what, what does it look like to understand and give grace for those things and to work through them? So you've talked about the beginning of your, um, awareness of your own mental health. Have you had any experiences since then? Yeah, lots. Um, so that's a really great question. Um, the anxiety and panic disorders and stuff like that are one piece of the puzzle. And then um, depression um, is definitely another one. And I'm, I'm sure they're all related in various ways. Um, in terms of anxiety, um, I think that one of the things I've been working with, so I, I have a, um, I've been working with a personal trainer who's also a nutrition coach recently. And one of the things he pointed out is that um, I get, I eat way too little food and I get way too little sleep relative to what I need. And so that's only been for the last six months. Um, but I've noticed that a lot of my anxiety and those things have been improving since, uh, getting more than, you know, five and a half hours of sleep a night and eating more than 1800 calories a day, which I'm, I'm 200 pounds. So I should be eating a lot more than I do. So one of the things I've noticed honestly, is that I've been able to understand a little bit about how much anxiety has been in, impacting my life and stress now that it's getting better. And one of the things I can say for sure is just that there has been a like a buzz of anxiety um, for as long as I can remember that I didn't, I thought that was life, right? I thought that was normal. Um, so, and there had been little blips where it increases, like for example, the headaches, uh, for example, my arm issue. And there's one of the other ones was I was flying to Australia and I fly all the time and I love flying. Um, but for some strange reason on this particular flight, now one thing I had been doing, started doing uh, relatively recently prior to this was I started um, always getting the window seat so that I could uh, sleep. And this was a much bigger plane than I was used to. And I think that the window, this was the where there's three sets of three instead of two sets of three seats. 
in each um, row. And I think there was something about the curvature of the plane. And maybe we had gotten to a certain point where they didn't have the air on well. But basically, I started feeling like I was stuck and I was trapped. And the, the interesting thing, I was actually only on the flight to Los Angeles, which is only probably four hours uh, or something like that, or five hours. Um, but then I started feeling that way. I started feeling nervous and stressed and worried. And then I thought, what happens if I feel this way on the 15-hour flight to Australia? And then I started panicking and stressing. And I'd never had a panic attack prior to that. I'd heard of them. so I, I But I didn't realize that that was what was happening because I'd never experienced one before. So thankfully, I was able to make it out of there. I got into the LA airport. I talked to that same friend who had been so helpful to me prior. I also talked to my wife and several of the people. I said, I don't know if I can do this flight. I might have to back out of Laracon AU. Um, and just really like pay them back for the flights and, and I feel so bad. And, and one of the things that this friend said was, there's a lounge where you are. Go pay $25 to go in one of those airport lounges and just kind of decompress a little bit. So I did that and researched panic attacks and panic disorders because you know he had mentioned that that was the thing. And I realized that um, it was a panic attack. And once I realized it was a panic attack, I could then Google and I learned all about panic attacks and I learned what panic is. And it is basically your brain telling you like, get out of here. It's this fight or flight type response. It's the flight. And so I said, oh, I was stuck in a physical space and my brain was telling me get out. And I I wish I remember all the specifics, but it basically was saying your brain tells you, you must get out for your safety. But the problem is I thought the the experience of panic was making me unsafe because I was worried, oh, I'm going to feel this way and I'm going to lose my mind. It's going to go. And so then that would make the panic attack get worse because it would it would be it was basically feeding into itself and so it was a loop and so the solution well there's multiple solutions but one of the solutions was to just say panic won't hurt you panic is scary panic is difficult to experience but the panic itself is not harmful and so if i can have a panic attack and say this is happening and all i must process is this panic attack not also further panic about the damage the panic is doing to me that can be really helpful um so that was one really really good thing for me but another thing i did was recognize that the um i felt like i was stuck in the space and so i asked them to move me to aisle the aisle and they weren't able to and i got on the plane to australia and i was like okay i'm all right and then i got into the um the window seat and i started panicking again and right then the um the the people i'd asked to get me to an aisle seat came on board and said we just found one aisle seat that's available move over and I, I mean i was 30 seconds away from deciding to not go to australia again while i was on the plane and they, they came on board while everyone was still loading and said we found another one for you and once i had air around me i could breathe i could stretch out um it was all fine so the the that was a single instance of just telling the story of the panic and the anxiety and the stress all have been an underlying kind of buzz and occasionally they'll blip up and i think that i'm doing things now that are helping me get a handle on them. So that's that's one. And then the whole other one is the depression. And that I have a less, I have less ability to specifically pinpoint um, start and end times and less ability to speak really specifically about it other than just to say that I'm still in the middle of learning exactly what its sources are and exactly the ways it's impacted me. Um, I, I think like many people with depression, I thought that depression was just sadness. And so when I first really realized that um, I was experiencing depression, um, it was in a moment where I was feeling very, very sad. It was like, just like with the, the anxiety, it was a moment where it had really bubbled up very strongly. And I went, oh my goodness, I'm so sad. Um, this is, you know, the, and it was, it was unstoppable, overwhelming, you know, shut down life. All I can do is lay in the couch for days type situation. And so I thought, 
okay, I'm depressed. This is depression. And then when that went away, I thought, okay, depression's over. And then over time, I started having conversations with people and saying, well, that's not really, you know, that the, that might be part of depression, but that's not the, the, the full definition of depression. A lot of depression just has to do with um, not even an ex- extreme of feeling, but a lack of feeling. And that is also a part of my life, but something that I don't know that I thought of as depression prior to maybe a, a year or two ago. And so unfortunately, I can't speak as eloquently about the depression aspect because I think it's something I'm still figuring out. And I've got a counselor um, who I talk through with these things, but um, unlike the anxiety and stuff, I think it's really something where I'm just still getting a finger on it. Um, but I have, uh, just like the anxiety stuff, I have my days where I just you know tell Dan, my business partner, I'm like, you know what? I The, the amount of productive work I'm gonna get today is very low. I will likely lay in the couch and turn on the TV. Um, and he says, yep, I totally understand. We have a thing at Titan where we say mental health days are, are sick days just like anything else. And so people can take mental health days. Um, Why do you think that that isn't the norm already? Uh, I think there's, well, f- first of all, there's an underlying cultural assumption that uh, mental health is not the same as physical health because you can help your mental health, but you can't help your physical health. You can't will yourself into not having the flu, but you can will yourself into not being depressed, which is obviously untrue, but I think that that's definitely a cultural concept. Um, But I also think there's a practical reason where it's very difficult to, you can tell somebody whether or not they have the flu, uh, or you can tell whether somebody has the flu or not by medical reasons, right? You can tell whether somebody, you know, is sneezing and coughing or whatever, but nobody else can tell whether or not you actually have a mental health issue that, that merits taking the day off. Um, and so how many mental health days do you give and what, what day is it a valid use of mental health day and what day is somebody just being lazy or whatever, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying those as a, as a, as a, like how I'm feeling about it, but as an employer, it is difficult for somebody to say, take as many days as you want off for your brain not feeling right, because it's very difficult to, um, uh, to judge, to gauge, um, and wanting to do so. You know, I think people know enough to know that when you want to do so, you're trying to basically tell someone, prove to me that you're depressed enough, which is a crappy thing to do. And so then you end up in a situation where you either give full freedom or no freedom. And so most people say, well, I'm going to do the one I control. And so I'm going to pick no freedom. In episode one, Dries spoke about employees having one-on-one time just on a personal level, not just about work. What do you think of that? Interestingly, um, there are some people whose either personality or mental health issues actually makes them not enjoy one-on-ones. And so there's something there, I would say, that that's, that's a, in some ways, at least that's tied to somebody's personality. I think they should do them anyway. Um, but there's some people who dread one-on-ones um, because it's very direct, very, um, co- you know, co- not confrontational, but, you know, it's not casual. It's very intense uh direct conversation with somebody and that that there's some people for whom that's just that's stressful you know that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it but i don't think that you can always say and i don't know what what dree said because i i have not heard his interview yet i'm sorry but i i would say that uh, um but there i i agree that one-on-ones are good and for someone like me one-on-ones are extremely valuable um for the level of connection and for feeling understood but i also want to recognize that there is a little bit of a um diversity in terms of people's experience of just how um enjoyable one-on-ones are I would say that if, if we're talking about the conversation about how a company can consider someone's mental health, I would say that the number one thing is to be as aware as the person is interested in making you and to be, to be listening and to be empathetic and to provide as much space as possible to honor that um, difficulties with mental health are just the same as difficulties with physical health and to do the hard work 
of developing a system that allows those things to be a part of sick leave policy. And it's not easy because there's there's not, you know, good and easy and tried solutions, but that's true for sick leave as well. If you've got 15 days of sick leave and somebody is sick for, you know, 35 days, how do you handle it? And that, those these are all things we've run into at Titan and we currently are always adjusting our policy a little bit each time we learn something new, but we're also always dealing with each circumstance on a, a case-by-case basis. So it's definitely not easy work for employers, but it's necessary. I think as well, it's important to recognize that uh, person A's mental health is going to be very different to person B and so on. It, yeah. A rule for one might not necessarily work for, for the rule for everybody else, but it it, it needs to have that uh, enough flexibility for it to work f- for everybody without kind of locking anybody else out of it yeah and that's and that's why it's work right because if you want to say well we'll deal with it with one person and whatever we did with them we're going to write it down and it's going to be the case forever like you said there's everyone's not going to be the same and so you have to remain willing to keep having the conversations each time and 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 honestly one of the things is that means the your employees have to as well um because for example you know if you have somebody who does end up you know knowing that you have a very gracious and caring and understanding work culture but also you can't just give unlimited sick leave if somebody gets sick without disability you know for a long time and i know this is probably different in the us than it is in um places with different med- medical systems like uh britain and, and canada uh uk and canada um but the um There are conversations where you have to say, hey, we have this value and also we have this particular legal or financial constraint uh, that allows us to only be able to help you so far in terms of this mental health issue. So in that circumstance, the most important thing is communication, right? You might not be able to provide every single benefit you want, but be honest about what you want, give the best you're capable of and communicate as frequently as possible so somebody doesn't end up being completely stuck when they expected one thing and then got another, but they didn't know until it was too late or something like that. Whilst we're talking about um, companies and, and you as an employer, it must be quite daunting being an employer and having people's livelihoods depend on you. What impact, if any, has that taken on you mentally? Yeah, um, I was really blessed to have the opportunity to have my first internship. So not my first job. My first job was cleaning out stalls at a horse farm because they were the only people that would pay me when I was not legally allowed to work yet when I was 14. Um, but my first internship, uh, I, I worked in the warehouse of a video production company. And uh, the person who ran the company, um, at one point there was a downturn and they weren't able to keep one of their people around. And he was something who, someone I knew um, from church. And he didn't really confide in me much because I was some you know, 16 year old kid. But one day he was just really feeling down about um, the fact that they had basically let someone go who they'd known for years and who'd been really integral part of the company. Um, and by let go, I mean laid off. So he, he was doing his job well, but their company could no longer support that position being around. And he said, basically, he said, you know, Matt, uh, I feel like in running this company, I have the responsibility for everybody. Um, but what I had to recognize is the fact is that I have the responsibility to run this company the best I can, not to provide for each individual person. And each individual person has the responsibility for their own lives. And I'm going to create the best working environment I can for them, the best space for them. But I'm not responsible for their lives. I'm responsible for treating them as well as I can. And that 
did not at the moment say, I, you know, I didn't think I was going to run a company. I didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur. I, I said, oh, that's really interesting to know. And that's a person, a people thing. But then I had to, the first time I had to fire somebody or the first time I had to, you know, make a negative, you know, change to policy that might make somebody unhappy in some way or something like that. And I, I immediately felt the full responsibility of every negative impact that any decision I ever made would make on someone's life. And that was a really helpful thing for me to remember is because there's a huge ability to take responsibility for every person at Titan, um, all the positives, all the negatives, especially the positive and negatives that come from Titan um, and say, those are now my responsibility. I set up a policy that put this thing in a place that made this happen, or I am the person who laid them off, or I'm the person, you know, I had to lay somebody off this year and it was awful and I hated it and it was very difficult. Um, but the position that they were working in was no longer, um, you know, something that we could support at Titan. Um, and so that was, that was tough, man. I did not want to do that. And I definitely felt a lot of responsibility, but what I, what I said was I'm not responsible for them, but I'm responsible for how I treat them. So one of the things that we did there was say, you know what, like a layoff in a normal circumstance might be, Hey, it's Friday, put all your stuff in a box and security is going to walk you out. And a layoff at Titan, you know, this is not always going to be the case, but was, hey, um, this position is not going to exist in several months. So you have several months to go find another job. Uh, you know, so like how, that's a very different experience. In the end, I'm still not providing for that person's salary. Right. But I was able to treat them in such a way where I say I did the absolute best I could for them um, and the circumstance. And so it's it kind can of a weigh on change you. in mindset, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can weigh on you, but what you need to do is say, I'm not responsible, and you take that responsibility, and, and like, so there's a lot of stuff that's really helpful in 12-step programs that have to do with, and I don't know if you're familiar with 12-step programs, but like Alcoholics Anonymous and that kind of stuff, and a lot, one of the really valuable things that comes out of those programs is that uh, they're very much about focusing you on yourself, um, and so I've had various levels of experience uh, connecting to people who are in those and reading the materials of those and stuff like that. And one of the really valuable things that's come out of them for, for me when I've been learning that stuff is um, you are not responsible for anybody but yourself. Uh, one of the, I don't know if you're familiar with the serenity prayer, but the serenity prayer is God grant me the, I'm trying to remember it, the serenity to accept the things that I can change, the wisdom, no, the, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. But one of the um, 12-step programs modifies that and turns it into, God grant me the serenity to accept the people I can change, or I accept the people I can't change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. And so it's that really interesting idea that like I am responsible for me and only me. It becomes me. very introspective. Yeah, and I'm not responsible for other people. And that doesn't mean I'm not responsible for how I interact with them but I'm not responsible for their experience, their mental space, um, you know, their, even their reception of me. All I'm responsible is for me, my own health, my own brain, and how I interact with the people around me. Now, I'm not saying it isn't, but I've always imagined being an employer to be a very difficult job. I've always kind of felt that the, the weight of the employee's happiness would rest on me. Well, and interestingly, I'm not responsible for making sure they're happy, right? Like, because I can't make someone happy regardless as a boss or as a human being, I can't define somebody else's happiness. And I think that that's, a, that's actually even more relevant as a, as a spouse. I can't make my wife happy. 
I can do things that are good. I can do things that are caring. I can notice the things that when done make her happier, when done make her less happy and focus on doing the things that have made her happy in the past. But in the end, I can't be responsible for her happiness. And that's true for my employees as well. I can't be responsible for my employees' happiness. But what I can do is put myself in their situation and try to do the things for them that I would want for me. And then I can also listen to the things that they want and try to do them when possible. And then also listen to the things that other people have said either they would want or that they have appreciated employers doing or that they have done well as employers and do all those things. So it's, it's less about an individual's experience of working at Titan and more about what I do to create the best possible space to make those positive things happen. But in the end, I can't make somebody happy. And, and I, could, I could run the best company in the world and somebody could come in and they could be, you know, unhappy. Uh, so I, I, and I don't want to like harp on that too much, only just to say that it's my job to, well, my, the, the job I have taken is to create the best possible working experience for my employees and the best possible consulting experience for my customers. Um, and that's kind of what we want to do. Dan and I often say, uh, we want to create the agency that we want to work for. Cause he and I have both worked in agencies that are your stereotypical miserable agencies where you have to work on the weekends and there's long stressful deadlines doing work that somebody else promised that you would do that you never agreed would take that amount of time. You know, we've done that and we don't, you know, and they don't care about your family life and stuff like that. And we don't want that. So we said, we want to create a company that we actually want to work for. So that is the responsibility we've taken on, but we have not taken on the responsibility that anyone will experience that company in a particular way. So you've recently had negative experiences with people on Twitter and online. What are your responses to that? Yeah. um, (laughs) So there's a lot of different responses to what it looks like when people um, in our community behave in ways that are outside of what we think are really healthy and good and kind. Um, uh, one of the first things I do is recognize in any negative interaction that I'm having online is that, um, it's easy to miss somebody's intention. And so most, more than half of the time when I've been originally offended by something somebody says, I have stepped back, taken a breath and said, is this a language issue? Am I, are are there multiple ways to read this thing? Um, have I had seven people? Um, send me really jerky responses to this tweet. And is that now influencing the way I respond to this in this eighth person? I'm assuming they're being a jerk, but it turns out they're actually not. Um, that is a very common thing for me. So the first thing I do when I feel like I'm having a negative interaction on the internet is to step back and make sure that I'm not actually having what could be a different, you know, not, not negative. Um, another thing I do is I always um, write what I want to write and then delete it and instead write something that won't make me embarrassed later. And if I can't do that, then I just say there's nothing to write right now. Um, and so th- this is this, let's, we're starting at the smallest scope. How do you respond to these negative things? Um, so for example, I put out a tweet yesterday about, um, uh, about the fact that Titan's gonna be hiring soon. And I said, does anybody have any, um, uh, any like tips for us? And one of the responses somebody said was, don't ask dumb questions. You know, and my first response was, are you freaking kidding me? Like, what do you think about me? But, you know, so that's my first response, right? And so then I said, okay, I'm going to come back to this one, <laughs> you know? And so I just gave it a little bit. And then a little bit later, I looked at it and I go, okay, what's actually motivating this guy? He's probably 
been on calls where he feels like somebody asks dumb questions. And so he wants to go around to the whole world telling them, don't ask dumb questions. Okay, what does this guy mean by dumb questions? Well, his second sentence was, ask things that are relevant. So my guess is that what he really means is, I've been on interviews before where people asked me things that had nothing to do with the job I was going to do, and I got really frustrated. Okay, I actually really agree with him. I think that if he was one of my followers and had listened to the stuff I talked about on a regular basis, he would know that I agree with him. And he may have potentially not worded it in such a way that would suggest that I'm going to ask dumb questions. But hey, is that something for me to get stressed out about? No. So what I did was I sent him a tweet back this morning that said something like, well, damn, there goes all my interview questions and then like a laughing face. So disarming, um, you know, funny. Now that doesn't mean that everyone should always take the responsibility on themselves for turning some asshole on the, on the internet. I'm not saying that guy was an asshole, but the, uh, turning some asshole on the internet into like a little funny laugh thing, because a lot of people get a lot of these negative interactions and, and the, the best and healthiest thing that they can do is block those people or be snarky to them or whatever. So each person needs to decide what their level of interaction with trolls and un- inconsiderate people looks like. And, the more negative you get, the more you're feeling like you need to defend yourself, the more likely that some, some someone like that guy who's not a troll and probably not an asshole either um, will have to get lumped in there for someone's self-care. So the way we interact with negative interactions on the internet has to be uh, considered with our unique situation, with who we are as people. Um, how many of those things we get, what our mental health looks like in that particular moment. And for example, when I had one negative response to that tweet, I had way more grace and time to step back and think about that guy than when I put out a tweet a couple weeks ago about something in Laravel where like the entire, you know, well, actually internet decided that I was an idiot. And I got probably 70 or 80 or 90 really negative and snarky tweets in a row. Well, my ability to give each of those 70 or 80 or 90 people grace was much lower than this one guy. So I still did things to try and protect myself, right? I only responded when I felt like I could respond in a way that was in line with stuff that would not make me feel shame later. That's for protecting me. Um, I just therefore did not respond to a lot of them. But I also worked as hard as I could to try and give grace and, uh, you know, consideration to each person. But it was very different then. And I have friends who get that kind of stuff, like, in the, in the realms of 100 responses on a daily basis. And almost all of them are women and majority of them are women of color. And so, like, the, I just want to say straight out, the standards that we can apply to how to respond to negative people on the Internet are going to be different based on the circumstance, based on the day, based on what people have. That said, I say I, I would say that it's not just a matter of how I respond to those people, but also how we treat those people in our community. And so one of the things that I have sort of like self-appointed uh, in the liberal world is to try and help us all be nice and be considerate and be loving and caring. And the, the hard part for me is to do that and at the same time, remember the whole thing where I can't control their people and I shouldn't try to control other people like we we're talking about earlier. So how do I not take the responsibility for other people, not feel like I can tell them what to do, um, and at the same time, try to create a good and healthy and welcoming space? So one of them for me has been finding and promoting people who are positive. Um, when I see people who are good and healthy and welcoming and considerate and friendly, I try to boost their their um, 
you know, their messages or their audience or whatever else it ends up looking like. So I try to promote voices of people and hire voices of people who are doing good and being caring and being empathetic. I also teach. I gave a talk about empathy and I regular tweet, regularly tweet and podcast about being caring and considerate and friendly and stuff like that. Um, but also one of the things that I do is I try to, when I see negative behavior in the community, I try to, without trying to claim like I'm a leader or anything like that, I try to shut it down or I try to redirect it or I try to teach people how to communicate. So for example, when I see GitHub issues, you know, in the Titan repos or in the, um, the Laravel repos that are becoming negative, those are the ones I'm most likely to jump into. And I try to redirect or I try to gently kind of suggest a different way of going about it. So it's a careful line, right? Because I want us to all be better and I don't want to be like the community, you know, dad who comes in and feels like he's in charge. I'm not in charge. I have no official position and that's not my responsibility or my job. But I also want to be a part of making that change happen in the community. And so it was a little weird when I, I had, you know, one big circumstance where somebody was threatening me um, and everybody kind of saw it. And thankfully in that moment, I didn't respond at all. And it was a really good moment for me where somebody threatened me physically on Twitter and I didn't send a single response. First of all, because I couldn't, I couldn't think of a single healthy way to do that. Um, and second of all, because it was, it was really kind of scary, man. Like the, no matter whether or not you think that person is really going to harm you um, when someone like records a video of them threatening physical violence, it impacts you in ways that your uh, conscious, mental, you know, rational brain is not fully able to control. Um, yeah, and so it becomes fight or flight again, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, and it just, there's just a level of, you know, just kind of like, Oh, somebody really wants to harm me. And you know, that person could find me if they wanted to and harm me, you know, kind of thing, or at least try to harm me. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's an experience that most of us are not used to. I'm certainly not used to. Um, but what was really helpful for me was the fact that the community around me didn't sit around and say, Oh, yep. That's what life is like. People are jerks on the internet. A large swath of people came out and said, that's not acceptable. Don't do that. Here's why this is bad. And that response of other people who could have said, well, that's not my responsibility. I can't control other people. They came in and they said, that's not okay. That's not how we treat people. And their responses made my experience of that completely different. If that, if that threat had happened and there had been no response, it would have had a drastically worse response for me or experience for me mentally than if I, um, then what really happened, which was I had a full community rise up around me and support me and people I didn't even know just saying like really making me feel, uh, cared for and validated in my, my experiences and stuff like that. And so there's a big impact that we can have. And I don't think that a lot of the people who, um, who said something realized that they were really a part of like my sanity during that moment. And so it is important for us to kind of take the onus on ourselves a little bit to try and kind of watch out for each other. To finish off each episode, Matt, I like to ask each of my guests um, one final question. And that is, what makes you a happy dev? Um, Well, the simplest thing that makes me happy is my kids. Um, You know, they, there's very few things in the world that uh, make, give me more joy than when I come home and they, you know, I hear, so I open up the garage door and they can hear the garage door. And so when I'm, you know, opening up my car door and walking in the garage, I hear thump, 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 as they come running down the stairs and daddy, they try to bowl me over. And that's definitely highlighted my life um, the most broadly. Um, In terms of not just people and experiences, but like what things in general make me happy. um, My... 
I, I love coding and all that stuff and those things do make me very happy, but the, my favorite part is people. My favorite part of being a, a, a programmer is the interactions I have with people and the, my favorite part of running Titan is the interactions I have with people. Um, you know, we're trying to do good for people and the people we're trying to do good for are our families, uh, each other, and like me and Dan, our employees, our customers, and the rest of the people in our communities. Um, and so the fact that I get... <clears throat> The fact that I get day-to-day experiences where my goal with the next hour of my life is just to teach people and to help other people, um, you know, become Laravel programmers more easily or to, um, you know, to pair program with someone who's just learning something or to have a one-on-one with an employee and just talk about like how Titan can be doing a better job, making their lives better or hack on something they're really excited about. The fact that a big part of my job is just caring for people and like teaching and encouraging a good and healthy community and trying to bring more people in to get the benefits of the community that I already have. Like that, that gives me a lot of joy, like getting to fly around the world, teaching people about how to be good to each other or teaching people how to, to, to have the experiences in Laravel that I've had or whatever. Like the fact that that's my day-to-day job is really fantastic. And it really gives me uh, a lot of happiness. It's definitely not taken for granted either. No kidding. Oh, you've been, well, it's not for me. I don't, I don't take it for granted. It's an amazing opportunity. The fact that I get paid to teach and, and pair and stream and, and all this stuff and be, be a positive part of the community is an incredible, an incredible luxury. And I'm very, very, I don't take it for granted at all. Brilliant. Are there any, um, resources or anything that you would like me to link to in the show notes at all? All right. It is called healthy hacker with Chris Hunt. And, uh, it's this, it's kind of just like a mixed bag thing. It's talking about some pretty interesting programming concepts, but also just things that try to make us be healthy. And so he talks about, um, financial planning and negotiating salaries and memory strategies and writing good pull requests and conference speaking and just all this. It's this very, just a kind of random mixture of things, but it's for someone who thinks a lot about how to do, um, you know, our jobs in a healthy way. So that's a really cool podcast. Um, I mentioned 12 step programs before. I think that it's underappreciated how much wisdom is embedded in 12 step programs. And there's some things, some things that are similar across all of them and some things are unique. But I would say that like if somebody's really just trying to think about like what it looks like for us as people um, to really kind of have good, healthy understandings of the boundaries between us and other people, that's something there's a lot of wisdom there. And I would definitely recommend someone just going and picking up really any literature you can find about 12 step programs online regardless of whether or not you're, you know, in need of a 12-step program broadly, you know, a specific one, there's a lot of wisdom that's in there. And, you know, we always talk about how there's these different sources of, you know, wisdom. We talk about the um, the Stoics and stuff like that. Um, and I think that a lot of people who are really thinking about their own mental health, they've been thinking about Stoicism and very, and people often will refer- reference, well, I'm not religious, but I, I get this wisdom from this religion. And I think the 12-step programs one are one where people have not seen the wisdom of there as much. So I would definitely encourage folks to go just kind of just take a good quick look at what the 12 steps are and, and whether there might be some value in kind of thinking through those things a little bit. Um, and I would say maybe the last thing is that the tool I'm building right now in my live streams on ramp, the goal of on ramp is to help people have more control over their lives by becoming high level Laravel programmers. And I don't know whether any of your audience is or isn't Laravel programmers, but I would say that 
if somebody wants to contribute, one of the things that we can do to contribute towards people's, you know, stability and mental health and, and, and all that stuff is to give them situations in which their lives are more like they want them to be. It's funny because we talked about how we should be positive in whatever situation we're in. But one of the things that's really most damaging for a lot of people's mental health is uh, financial instability. And, you know, a lot of you know, not knowing where your next paycheck is going to come from, a lot of those things can really make it hard to get to a place where you're stable enough that, you know, maybe you can be a little bit more happy in every circumstance type thing. And so one of the goals with OnRamp um, is to try and make more people have the opportunity to be both in a financially stable position by being hireable level programmers, but also be in a community that I think is really, really healthy and encouraging and welcoming, which is the level community. So if anybody wanted to contribute towards that um, or wants to become a level programmer, just go check out onramp.dev. Um, and, you know, it's not directly mental health related, but it's, it's, they're all part of the same puzzle. So I think that's it for me. Brilliant. That, that's everything I've got, Matt. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to me today. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate you making the space for this conversation. I'm recording this after my interview with Matt. So you will have to excuse my poorly voice, I'm, I'm afraid. Thank you for listening to episode two of Happy Dev. And thank you, Matt, for sharing your great story, your advice, your tips. Um, And thank you for spending the time with me to make me a better podcaster. See you next time.